You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, today is the second Sunday of the season of Lent as we are journeying with Jesus to the cross and we're contemplating the meaning of the cross and we're also considering prayerfully what does a cross-shaped life look like we're on the journey with Jesus through Lent and we're, we're taking communion at the end of our service as we are each Sunday of Lent and as most of you know we, we've been doing this a little bit differently and we've been getting lots of great feedback on on kind of a new way of doing communion or maybe it's the old way of doing communion that we're returning to uh, but at the conclusion of our service, at the, at the end of the sermon, there will be a pair of people here, my wife and I, and then Wade and Cheryl, surprise Cheryl, uh, they're going to be uh, serving communion as well. And Doug and Cassandra will be in the balcony. If you're in the balcony, we don't forget about you either. Uh, there will be Doug and Cassandra, they'll be in the back. And so what you'll do, as soon as everyone's in place, just come forward, you'll come to the middle aisle and come forward row by row, take a piece of the pre-cut bread and dip just the end of it in the cup. Be very careful. Just dip the end of the bread in the cup, partake, and then you'll circle back to your seat. In balcony, you'll go backwards. You'll go that way and circle around. And it's just been a really meaningful time um, through Lent, sharing communion at the end of our service. So our, our text today, our, our reading today, our passage is John chapter 3. We're going to look at that. title of the sermon is Blowing in the Wind. Not blowing in the wind. Blowing in the wind. You got to get it right. Let's look at it. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with that person. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, Heavenly Father, we pause in your presence. We quiet our our hearts and our minds, our thoughts. We just set every competing thought pattern aside, every preoccupation that we could be dwelling upon, we, we push it to the side. And as best we know how, out of a spirit of worship, we focus and to receive whatever you might have for us. Speak to the very core of our being, a life-giving word. 
may it take deep root. May it sprout and grow up and bear fruit for your eternal kingdom. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So let's meet Nicodemus. The first thing you need to know about Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He was a member of that religious-slash-political party in Israel. In fact, in the first century in Israel, there were five such religious-slash-political movements. I keep having to say religious-slash-political because it was all jumbled up. There was no separation. And there were five of these movements, and I just want to give you a quick summary of the five just so you'll have a little bit of understanding of who these people were. So the Pharisees, first of all, the Pharisees were very conservative very religiously devout. They were a take Israel back for God movement in the first century. The Pharisees believed that we can just get the people of Israel to be serious enough and follow strictly enough the law and our traditions. It'll cause a big national revival and somehow or another uh, it will trigger God to move and deliver us and the kingdom of God will arrive through our own moral piety. So that's the Pharisees. Underneath the Pharisees you have the Sadducees Now, whereas the Pharisees were much more of a blue-collar movement spread throughout Israel, the Sadducees were wealthy, aristocratic people who were the keepers of the temple, and they were headquartered in Jerusalem. All of the high priests, vast majority of the Sanhedrin, all of the formal leadership of Israel, Jewish leadership, I should say, these, these were all Sadducees. And uh, they had a lot of religious differences with the Pharisees. Won't get into that today. But the main thing I want you to know about the Sadducees is they were kind of colluding, in a sense, with Rome. They were working with Rome. Um, The Sadducees needed the Romans to keep them in power over the temple. They wanted to cling to that position. It was very important, that political power. And then Rome needed the Sadducees to keep the Jewish people pacified. So it was kind of a a working relationship, even though they didn't trust each other. They worked with one another. They needed one another. And then under the Sadducees, we see the Herodians. Now, the Herodians, like the Sadducees, also very wealthy people, powerful people. um, And they were also colluding with Rome, but they have really no religious commitment. They're purely in it for political power. And uh, they they are definitely conspiring with Rome. And their whole goal is we want to maintain good relationships with Rome. And they were doing quite well at that. Fourthly, on the opposite end of the spectrum are the zealots. Far from working with Rome and colluding with Rome, the the zealots really are interested in overthrowing Rome. They started as a tax revolt movement. They became like a full-blown militia. These are the people always trying to start riots and rebellions and revolts and things like that. And a very militaristic militia guerrilla warrior type movement. And then finally, the fifth group. This is the one that we don't read about in the New Testament, the Essenes. The Essenes were the apocalyptic separatists. They have have removed themselves from mainstream society. They have moved, literally moved away from all of the population centers, and they have moved out into the desert uh, by the Dead Sea, and they have become almost kind of a cult. They've... uh, They're they're their own sect. They've got a very strict form of Judaism, and they're out there in the desert predicting and preparing for the end of the world. And in a sense, it kind of was the end of the world. It was the end of their world. Within one generation from the time of Jesus, the Romans and the Jews go to war, and the Romans obliterate Jerusalem, and 
And then eventually the Jews have their last stand at Masada, which was right where the Essenes were, and then that's going to be the end of it right there. So you have these five groups, these five categories. And it might surprise you to learn, but the one of these groups, the one of them that Jesus has the most in common with by far are the Pharisees. He doesn't have a whole lot in common with the others. He doesn't have a lot in common with the Sadducees or especially the Herodians or the Zealots or the Essenes. But but the Pharisees and Jesus shared a lot in common. For example, both Jesus and the Pharisees had a very high view of the Scriptures, not just the law, but the prophets as well. Both Jesus and the Pharisees believed in the final resurrection of the dead as the culmination of God's promises. Both of them believed that the kingdom of God was coming and it would signal the the beginning of a whole new era. So there was a lot that Jesus had in common with the Pharisees, but in the end, of course, Jesus was not a Pharisee. In fact, the Pharisees became sharp critics of Jesus and Jesus also returned some pretty stiff rebukes their way. And he wasn't one of the Pharisees because his practices were radically different from the Pharisees when it came to how he engaged with people, how he embraced people, how he would sit down and share a meal with the worst, perceivably worst of sinners, the tax collectors of society. And this was one of the reasons why the Pharisees were such sharp critics of Jesus because he would just sit down and have a meal with anyone. And so Jesus didn't practice the kind of separatism that the Pharisees were known for. In fact, that's what the word Pharisee means. It means to separate. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, he was a prominent Pharisee. You know, every, every movement had their own leaders, their own preachers, teachers, speakers, etc. And so Nicodemus was a teacher of the Pharisees. This is a highly decorated professor, we would say with multiple theological doctorates, very intelligent, well-learned, well-studied man, and he is one of the Pharisees' more prominent theologians and scholars. And Nicodemus believes that Messiah is coming and that when Messiah comes, he's going to usher in the kingdom of God. This is what he believes. But Nicodemus is certain He knows how it's going to happen. He is certain that the Messiah would be a Pharisee. That from among his own group, there would arise a leader who would lead Israel's hearts back to God and overthrow the Romans. This is what Nicodemus is confident in. He is certain that Messiah would come from among the Pharisees. And then Jesus showed up. And now... Nicodemus finds himself in a state of what psychologists call cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance. It's when two things are colliding in your world and you can't put them together. You can't make them fit. You can't make sense of it. Your head's spinning. And this is what happens to Nicodemus because on one hand, he's watching and observing this young Galilean prophet and and he's seeing that, man, this guy sure sure looks like Messiah. Because he's doing a lot of the stuff we expect Messiah to come and do. He's, he's doing the kinds of miracles. Raising the dead, opening blind eyes, multiplying food. 
he's, these aren't just like ordinary miracles, as if any, any miracle is ordinary, but these aren't even just the ordinary miracles we read about in the scriptures. These are, these are miracles, not just for the sake of miracles. They're signs pointing to his identity. In fact, there was a, um, a very well-known rabbinic tradition that Nicodemus would have been familiar with that, that said, when one comes from among you who is able to open the eyes of a person born blind, that's how you know Messiah, that's how you know he's the Messiah. And so Nicodemus is watching and observing Jesus, and he's realizing this man bears all the marks of Messiah, but on the other hand, he's not one of us. He's not a Pharisee. This isn't what we were expecting. Spiritual crisis, cognitive dissonance, two things that Nicodemus cannot reconcile. Here's a man that appears to be the Messiah, but he's not coming the way that we thought he would come. The problem with the Pharisee theology that Nicodemus espoused and was such an expert in is that it was a closed system. They had God all figured out. If you don't believe it, just ask them. They were the Bible answer men of their day. And they were certain that they were right. Closed system. We've got it figured out. We've, we've got God. We have figured out this infinitely beautiful and mysterious God. And we have distilled him down to a concise set of principles and positions and doctrinal statements. Nothing more to be discussed. Nothing more to be discovered. Closed system. We have figured God out. And Nicodemus was the great theologian and scholar of the Pharisees' systematic theology. And then Jesus comes around and throws a monkey wrench into the whole thing. As he always does. And now Dr. Nicodemus, with his tenure and his degrees and his theological acumen, now he's in a spiritual crisis. Because on one hand, Jesus has all the marks of being the Messiah, but he's not a Pharisee. But Nicodemus was not a blind Pharisee. He was a Pharisee who kept his eyes open. And that's important right there. I want everybody to look at me. I don't do this often, but I want to make sure I have all of your attention because I want to say something that's very important. If you are following Jesus authentically and making progress in the Jesus way, I want you to know right here from the beginning that all throughout your life, you will have multiple moments and multiple seasons of cognitive dissonance. You will go through dark nights of the soul. You will go through multiple spiritual crises, and you'll find yourself saying things like this. You'll say, I thought I had this all figured out. I had my rapture chart written in ink. And now I've got to throw it all away. I'm not so certain anymore. I'm not so sure. I've got to rethink all of this. And what I want you to know is that is a normal way of life for the apprentice of Christ. So it is with every example we have in the New Testament. So it was for Peter. So it was for James and John. So it was for Mary. So it will be for you. So it was for Paul. Keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open. Don't close your eyes. So Jesus 
is in Jerusalem for Passover. Nicodemus, of course, he's there as well. And Nicodemus gets wind of the fact that Jesus is there. And he says to himself, I got to go see him. I got to find a way to go see him, talk to him. And uh, he, he, somehow or another, he finds out where Jesus is staying. And it says Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Why by night? It doesn't tell us. But I think it probably gave him some cover. You know, I mean, here he is, this well-known, prominent, super-educated Pharisee with all of his degrees. And, and if word gets out that he's going and seeking an audience with this young prophet from Galilee, from the hills up there, and he's got no training, if word gets out about this, it's going to bring some unwanted attention. Nicodemus doesn't want to deal with that. So he does it discreetly. And he comes to Jesus by night. And when he finds Jesus, I want you to notice the first word out of Nicodemus' mouth. He calls him rabbi. I think that's remarkable. I think, I think it says something about his heart. Because that's, think about it. This guy, like I've said, I mean, we could call him Dr. Nicodemus. He has the equivalent of we would call multiple PhDs in theology. This is a highly decorated, highly credentialed, well-regarded teacher among the teachers. He's their teacher. And here he is seeking counsel and wisdom from a 30-year-old self-proclaimed prophet from, from the hills of Galilee, and he's got no formal training. He's been a carpenter his whole life, and he calls him rabbi. That's a, that's a title of respect. I think that's really interesting, and we shouldn't just skate right over it. And Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you come from God because you could not do the things that you're doing if God were not with you. But, 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 and Jesus bails him out. Because <laughs> Nicodemus doesn't know how to quite put it together. What he, what he wants to say is, but, this wasn't quite what we were expecting. This is not happening the way we predicted. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, he says, I'm telling you the truth. Unless you're born again, born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what's the kingdom of God? I, I've been talking to you about the kingdom of God ever since I moved here. But we talked about it yesterday. Or not la yesterday, last week. I talked about it yesterday with our prayer workshop people, but I talked about it with you last week. The kingdom of God is what Jesus came to usher in, to bring. He came to announce the kingdom of God, to embody and enact the kingdom of God, to usher it in, to bring the kingdom. And so everything Jesus did and said the kingdom of God was being manifested when he forgave sins, when he heals the sick, when he drives out demons, when he's sitting down with the least of society and, and all of this type of thing. This is all demonstrations and manifestations of the kingdom of God. So, so we got to understand the kingdom of God is not like just simply some future place or reality that we're just sitting on our hands waiting for to get there when we die. No. According to Jesus, the kingdom of God's in our midst. It's right in front of your face. It's, it's right here. The question is, can you see it and will you participate in it? Anywhere we are coming under the reign of King Jesus and living and carrying out his vision, we're participating in the kingdom of God. He taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven right now. 
So even now, the kingdom of God is spreading. When we do things as a church, like come together for worship, when we do things at church like, like collecting in our Friday fast fund or collecting socks and underwear for the poor in Tijuana, th- these are ways we are participating in the mission of God, the kingdom of God in the world. Right now, we're a part of that. And Jesus is telling Dr. Nicodemus, sir, unless you're born again, you're not going to be able to perceive and participate in what God is doing which is exactly what happened to all of these other Pharisees. They missed out. They fancied themselves as the preeminent spiritual leaders of their day, and yet when the kingdom of God was ushered in, they opposed it, and they rejected it because they rejected the king, King Jesus. And so Jesus tells them, you're not going to be able to perceive and participate in what God is doing unless you're born again. Or literally born from above. Now, born again, that's a phrase right there that we have become so familiar with in American evangelicalism, and we think we know what it means. And this is one of those cases we've got to unlearn it so we can relearn it. And what it means to be born again, this, is a, this was an idiom, this was an expression. And it meant something like this it meant to take it from the top, to start from scratch to knock down your Jenga tower and start again on level one, to go back to the drawing board. That's what it meant. So if you put it together, here's what Jesus is telling. And think about the audacity it would take for a 30-year-old uncredentialed prophet to say this to a guy with multiple PhDs. Dr. Nicodemus, I know you've got all these degrees, you've got this tenure, you've got this formal education, and you've got all of this theological prowess, you've written all of these theological volumes, you're so highly regarded, you've got your system built, but I'm telling you, if you want to participate in what God's doing right now on the earth, you're going to have to take it from the top. You're going to have to go all the way back and rethink a whole lot of everything. And, and Nicodemus gets it. He doesn't like understand everything Jesus has been doing and saying, but he totally understands what Jesus means right here. And because metaphor is how rabbis, it was kind of like they were experts and they would teach in metaphor, uh, Nicodemus plays along. And he says, but I'm an old man. You really expect me? How can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? We think he's confused. He's not confused. He knows exactly what it means. He's, he's speaking in metaphor. What Nicodemus is saying is, Jesus, I'm an old man, and I have lived my life teaching this system, looking at it this way, passing it on to others. This is the only way I've ever lived. This is what I've been embodying in my life. This is my way of relating to God and others. I've built and invested my entire life into this direction, this trajectory, and now you're asking me, to go all the way back and start from scratch and change directions and think from a different point of view, you're ask, what you're asking of me is highly demanding. And that's exa- exactly what Jesus is asking him to do. But it's something that Nicodemus could in fact do, otherwise he wouldn't have been in the conversation in the first place. If, if Nicodemus was incapable of rethinking everything, he would have done what all of these other Pharisees were doing when Jesus came around. They would say, nope, 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 I'm going to shut my eyes. I'm going to shut my eyes tight. I don't want to see this from a different point of view. 
I don't want to hear this man teach. I don't want to listen to his ideas. I've got my system. I've got my point of view. I'm comfortable with it. It served me well. So don't give me any new ideas. Don't give me any new point of view. I just want to keep thinking the same way I've always thought. And that's not Nicodemus, thank God. i got to tell you, I have a lot of admiration for Nicodemus because he had a whole lot to lose. But Nicodemus had the guts to let Jesus threaten his certainty. He was willing to rethink his certainty, not on a whim, not out of novelty, but because he had encountered Christ. He had encountered the person of Jesus Christ, and Jesus was so overwhelming to him that Nicodemus, this doctor with all of these degrees and all of this respect, he says, I think I'm going to have to go back to the drawing board. That's what it means to be born again. It's not a little formula, A, B, C, one, two, three, say this little prayer, boom, congratulations, you're born again. That's not it at all. To be born again is to encounter Jesus and begin rethinking your life. Now, how does that happen? How do we go about being born again? How does that come about in our lives? Let's look again at verse 8. Jesus says, The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. Let's read it one more time, this time in the New Living Translation. I like the way that this is worded. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. You can't explain it. You can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Stop trying to explain it. You can't explain it. And the irony is we totally think we can explain it. Like that's what we're good at. We can totally explain how to be born again. We've got a formula for it. It's as simple as ABC. One, two, three. Pray this little prayer. Boom, you're born again. Congratulations. Here's your little certificate. We've got our formula. So what we've done is we've taken Jesus' words when he's explaining to the very systematic, very formulaic Pharisee, Nicodemus. He's telling Nicodemus for crying out loud, Nicodemus, you can't make a formula out of this. And what we've done is we've taken this whole concept of being born again and we've made a formula out of it. We've totally turned the whole thing upside down and we miss the point of it. Why do we do that? I think it's because we're so much more comfortable with our certainty and with our formulas than we are with the untamed wildness of the Spirit of God. We don't want to hear that the Spirit of God is about as unpredictable as the wind. I don't want to hear that. I want to know how it's going to work every single time. I want to be able to control it, manipulate it, mass produce it. Like God's a machine or something, just cranking out born-again Christians. And he's not. He's like the wind. And you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. You can't control it. You just hope to be there when it does. The gospel is not a formula. The gospel is not a set of principles. The gospel is not a pamphlet. The gospel is a story, first of all. And if you can, like, train your mind to begin thinking that way, that this is not a formula, this is not a set of instructions, the gospel is a story, if you can lodge that in your minds, that is a huge leap in the right direction. 
The gospel is a story, and it's a story centered on an actual person named Jesus Christ. And when that story is told, faith becomes possible. The scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So when you hear the story of Jesus, born of a virgin, taught the kingdom of God, embodied the kingdom of God in everything he ever said and did, goes to the cross, he's crucified, buried. On the third day, the father vindicates his son and ascends him to his right hand of power. When that story is told, something happens. You hear that story and you're given the capacity, if you choose, to believe it. And as you believe it, all of a sudden what begins to happen is your story starts getting tangled up with Jesus' story and you find yourself beginning to rethink your life, finding forgiveness, finding wholeness, finding redemption. That's what happens. But you know, we don't want to leave it quite as uncertain as that. As two stories intersecting and in in some way, some mysterious way we can't fully explain being born again unto new life. We don't want to leave it as uncertain as that. So instead of just telling the story of Jesus and believing and trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to work, we want to invent formulas so we can make it simple and predictable. So we come up with things like the four spiritual laws and the Roman road and the ABCs of salvation and the sinner's prayer and all of that kind of stuff. Here's the problem with all of that stuff. It's all well-intentioned. It may or may not have its place. But the problem with thinking of the gospel that way, saying this is the gospel, and then we turn it into like a set of instructions or the four spiritual laws or something, the problem with it is it begs the question, why didn't Jesus and the apostles just give us the four spiritual laws? (laughs) What's this business about giving us all these parables and stories and narratives and passages, some of which we can't hardly even make heads or tails of. Why not just give us the four spiritual laws? For one thing, it would have saved us a whole lot of paper. (laughs) Have you seen how thick this book is? It's this epic collection of stories and parables and narrative and history and prophecy and poetry and letters and and all of this, and, it, and some of it's quite puzzling, but it's mysterious, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it immerses you in. But, but if the gospel is just as simple as a, a bunch of instructions, just give us a pamphlet with the instructions. I can fit it in my pocket. I could read it 20 times a day if I want. The Bible doesn't give us a formula so we can use God or control God. The Bible tells the story of Jesus and invites us if we're audacious enough to enter into the story by faith because faith is not a formula. Faith is participation in the story of Jesus. You know, every historical figure has the story that can be told of their lives. We can tell the story of Napoleon Bonaparte. We can tell the story of Julius Caesar. You could tell the story of Abraham Lincoln. But when you hear those stories, there's always this historical detachment. That's something that happened a long, long time ago in a faraway galaxy. And so you hear the story, and it doesn't, like, you just hear it, and you're like, okay, wow. Man, he went to Ford's Theater, got assassinated. How about that? What a shame. And then you just go on with your day. But when the story of Jesus is told, when we hear that story, faith comes by hearing that story. And if we choose to, we can believe that. And what happens is all of a sudden, the story bursts out of its historical cage. And there's no longer this historical detachment. This is something that happened 2,000 years ago. All of a sudden, I begin to realize and encounter the reality that that somehow or another, uh, this story starts bursting into the present moment. 
And what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago has complete and total bearing upon my life right now. It has something to do with my forgiveness, has something to do with my reconciliation with God, and it gives me a whole new way of looking at the world. That's what faith does. So being born again cannot be reduced to a formula or something that you check off. That's what we want to do. Have you been born again? Yep, 30 years ago, I can check that box off. What's next? I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that is the 180-degree total opposite of what Jesus means by being born again. When it just becomes something like, yeah, I did that, check it off, done with it, okay, let's get on with it now. That's not anything remotely like what Jesus is talking about with Nicodemus. And it's the absolute worst way of relating to God. It turns God into a system. It turns God into a, a, like a vending machine. I just put my coins in. I get the goodies out. I say the little prayer, and I get salvation. Okay, what's next? It's a terrible way of thinking about all of this. It's a terrible way of relating to God. And it's precisely what Jesus tells Nicodemus he cannot do. I'm going to put this statement on the screen because I want you to ponder it for a moment. You might even just leave it up there for a moment. Um, and I want to make sure I get it right, too. I want to make sure I say it right. Being born again is not something you do once and are then done with, even though we've sold it that way. Being born again is an ongoing, perpetual way. You know what perpetual is? It's, it keeps happening over and over again. Perpetual way of relating to Jesus where faith replaces certitude. Certitude is a cheap, inferior substitute for faith. Nicodemus came with a bunch of troubling questions, meets Jesus, and he leaves with more troubling questions. <laughs> like, God, it, it, Jesus didn't solve all of his conundrums, his problems. Jesus said, just keep walking through this crisis, Nicodemus. You're going to have to walk all the way through it. Some of you need to hear that right now. You're going through a spiritual crisis. You're going through cognitive dissonance. You're in a season of your life where things are not connecting, things are not making sense. And you've got to let time and you've got to let the Spirit blow into your life. You can't control it. You can't fuel it. You can't manipulate it. Just be there when the wind blows and let the Spirit do its work. Oswald Chambers, you know, he wrote My Utmost for His Highest without a doubt, the most famous daily devotional ever written. And he writes about, in one of these passages, he writes about born again, what it is to be born again. And it's, he just like hits the bullseye. Look at what he says. Being born again of the Spirit is an unmistakable work of God. It's as mysterious as the wind, as surprising as God himself. Being born again from above is a perennial, perpetual, and eternal beginning a freshness all the time in thinking and in talking and in living i like this it is the continual surprise of the life of god so if you say well i've been born again there's no more surprises i've got it figured out i'll tell you no you need to get born again again you got to get born again and again and again and again it's a continual surprise in the life of God. But instead of surprising and mysterious experiences with the Spirit of God, we've made born again into being a kind of formalized membership. And that's just not how it happens. That's not the way it works. Being born again is not some mundane task like changing the oil in your car where all you have to do is follow the instructions. 
If you don't know how to change the oil in your car, you just look it up online. You'll find a web page that says how to change the oil in your car, just like you might find a page that says how to be born again. But being born again is not a simple formula that you follow. Being born again is like falling in love. Now, I believe in the reality of being born again. And I also believe in the reality of falling in love. Do you, carry? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. But can you explain to me how that happens? The best way, the best way I can explain falling in love, if you want to follow, fall in love, how does that happen? Here's my answer. You've got to meet the right person. And you say, okay, Ryan, how do you go about meeting the right person? I don't know. Just keep your eyes open. Don't shut your eyes tight. Keep your eyes open. Being born again is not like changing the oil in your car. It's like falling in love. You can't exactly explain how it happens. But when you meet Jesus and you know what happens, what do you do? You believe and you repent. You rethink your life and you get baptized. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says being born of water and of spirit. So there's a work of the spirit that's involved in this, but there's also a choice to formally incorporate myself into the life of Christ, being born of water and born of spirit. That's for another sermon. But for now, let's bring this sermon to a close. I'm going to ask Daniel, just Daniel to come, just begin to play softly. So Nicodemus comes by night, and he comes with questions. He's plagued with questions, troubled with these questions, and he's going through cognitive dissonance. And in effect, what he's saying is, Jesus, I used to have this all figured out. I thought I knew precisely how this was going to go down, and then you came along. I thought it was going to be exactly like this, just like we Pharisees have always believed. One, two, three, A, B, C. We had it all laid out, and then you came along. And Jesus is like, yeah, how about that? You're going to have to take it from the top, Nick, and rethink everything. And Nicodemus leaves. And I don't know, I'm just using my imagination. You're free to disagree with me, of course. But I don't, think, I don't think Nicodemus leaves this encounter with Jesus, saying to himself, oh, okay. Yeah, now I got it straightened out. I got it, I got it, I got it figured out now. Yeah, yeah, Jesus is Messiah. And he, he's going to go to the cross. He's going to die for the sins of the world. And on the third day, the Father's going to raise him from the dead. I got it. It's, it's figured out. I got it straightened out. I don't think it was anything like that. I think Nicodemus came with a bunch of troubling questions. And he left with even more troubled questions. That's what it was like when Paul met Jesus. Remember? On the road to Damascus? Five seconds before the blinding light appears on the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus is certain he's right. He's got his system down. And he's convinced that he's looking at things the right way. There's no doubt in his mind. He's not plagued with questions. He's got all of the answers. He's got all of the Bible answers for all of the Bible questions, and he's certain of them. Closed system. He's figured it out. No need to look at this from a different point of view. No need to think anything else. I'm looking at it right, and I'm a servant of the Lord doing the Lord's work. And then, bam, he meets Jesus, and Saul's like, I don't know anything. Somebody please take me by the hand. I don't know where I'm going. 
I don't know what I'm doing next. That's what it's like sometimes when you meet Jesus and you're following Jesus. You follow Jesus long enough, you're going to go through some spiritual crises. And you just got to work your way through it. But the one thing you know is you know Jesus is the one around whom I've got to reframe everything. And guess what? Nicodemus later on is at the cross. He's there with Joseph of Arimathea. And he's bought some spices and they take his body down to give him an honorable burial. And Nicodemus becomes among the very, very, very first people to hear the news and to believe that God had raised his son from the dead. But he had to go all the way through it, all the way through that dark night. And maybe you're here this morning and you've been going through a dark night of the soul. You've been going through this spiritual crisis, the season of cognitive dissonance. And what I want you to know, and I want to encourage you with this, is that that's not altogether bad news. I'm not telling you that it's pleasant. It's probably not pleasant. It's probably not all, not even in the least bit comfortable. It may be very disorienting right now, but it's not bad news. It just means that maybe you're about to meet Jesus in the night, in the darkness of that night, and he's going to give you new eyes so that you can perceive and participate in the kingdom of God in new, fresh unanticipated ways and may that ever be so in your life because the moment that stops happening you stop growing the moment you say nope I'm going to shut my eyes tight I've got my system I'm married to it I don't want to rethink anything I've got my point of view and I'm comfortable this way that's when you stop growing because when you follow Jesus he's going to lead you into all kinds of moments where you're like I, I, I don't got it figured out at all I got to have to rethink this that's what following Jesus is like. Most of the time, it's going to be smooth sailing. But every so often, I can't tell you how often, I can't tell you anything like that. Every so often, you're going to go through a dark night of the soul. But keep your eyes open. Because you're going to meet Jesus in the darkness of that night, and he's going to give you new eyes to perceive and participate in the work of God's kingdom in fresh ways. That's been my experience. May it ever be your experience. Stand with me. We're going to prepare now to come to the table of the Lord. I'm going to ask Wade and Cheryl, my wife Carrie, to come. Doug and Cassandra will be in the balcony. And I want you to just close your eyes for just a moment. I'm going to pray over you. I'm going to pray with you. Lord, on this second Sunday of Lent, we come to your table this morning just as we are. Not out of pretense, not out of routine, not out of ritual. We do this not out of obligation. But we do so. We come to your table because we're simply hungry for an encounter with you. We believe and we trust that you are at work in our lives in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our disorientation, in the midst of our dark seasons, you are accessible, you are, you are available, you are welcoming and inviting us to your table. And you say, come and see. Taste and see 
So Lord, I pray that the grip of certitude would be loosened and broken off. And just as the song says, give us grace to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.